the Gospels that changed the world. Whoever authored these Gospels were far brighter than we give credit for, and much of modern scholarship is behind the learning curve when it comes to this issue. What do I mean? I mean that scholarship is stuck constantly looking only at the Hebrew Bible. Now, I can't blame them completely. It seems obvious that the quotations are directly from Scripture, which means whoever's reading this literature is probably aware of the biblical context of the Hebrew Bible, or the Septuagint. Now, is it only that? Most scholars, like Delcy Allison Jr. and others that I've interviewed here on Myth Vision, they will tell you, yeah, I've been trained to look at the Hebrew Bible and find these connections. But what do they do when there aren't any? Do they force a square peg into a round hole, constantly trying to find these literary connections, or finding how this could be possibly from the culture surrounding in the first century? Sure, but their commentaries don't reflect the cultural relevance. In fact, their commentaries avoid any mimetic or possible eclectic mimicism or connections to the Greek world. Very rarely do we find an academic New Testament scholar ever source these materials. They most often are Hebrew Bible literary comparisons. And today I want to mention something of a secret that most people aren't acknowledging. It's only a secret to the broad, typical majority of population that's looking at this material. And that secret is the Greek world and its influence on the New Testament. It is no mystery that Gentiles enter the movement. But see, scholarship has started to go further in recognizing that Jews were more Hellenized than we think. To have Jews and Gentiles combined, not all Jews were thinking inside or outside their language the same way that we hear a lot of scholars discuss. Hellenism ran rapid all throughout this period. In fact, for the last few centuries prior to the first century, we find this. But it goes deeper. Let's say we grant, suppose the authors of the New Testament were all Jews. They had to be Greek-speaking and Greek-learned. Now what happens when you learn Greek in these times? In order to read and write, you had to learn the Homeric epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey. In fact, Euripides, the Bacchae, and other epic tales are told and understood by authors that learned to read and write in Greek. Now, the Gospels, I used to believe, were literal historical narratives, that these were actually what really happened. And then I found some problems. I couldn't match them up. The four different Gospels didn't agree with each other, so what did I do? I tried to harmonize them as a Christian, and I tried my damnedest to make that the truth. But the facts remain, the contradiction's still there. Now, what was going on? And I found out when I bumped into Dr. Dennis R. McDonald's work. Him and other academics have pointed this out, but Dennis goes further when it comes to the Greek connections. And when I saw that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't line up, Dennis said they were competing. And I thought, maybe this crazy old man has no clue what he's talking about. But actually, he's on to something. The Gospels are competing. They're competing literary devices to write better epics about Jesus. 
It's the same thing that the Aeneid did to the Homeric epics in the Odyssey. The Aeneid writing for the Roman audience to show that Rome is superior and that their gods and their understandings and traditions and laws rise above. But what do we do with the Jesus stuff? There are other scholars who've come on just for you to know, many that agree with what Dennis is doing and more are rising up to recognize that elites wrote the gospels like Robin Faith Walsh. She has pointed out that elites, sophisticated elites, are writing these Gospels and they are competing with one another, which makes sense as to why they would contradict even if we know that Matthew knew Mark or Luke knew Mark and some of these Gospels are competing with one another. Need I remind you that Luke says this Gospel is the most accurate one. Many have tried to take on this whole task of writing the Gospel, but here, I will relate to you the truth. Historians in this time would fabricate truths and write in such a manner that you would believe that theirs is the most historically reliable. We have examples in the Greco-Roman world. Luke is no different. So to give you an example, getting right to the beginning of Mark's gospel, because that's the earliest gospel we have, in consensus scholarship. You want to run to the church tradition and act as though Matthew's the earliest? Go ahead, be my guest. The thing is, we have overwhelming evidence from scholarship to suggest Mark came first. So I'm going to presuppose certain things without making strong cases for others. Mark comes on the scene and writes this Jesus figure, shows up to be baptized by a man named John. And as he's being baptized, the heavens open and a dove, a bird, dove, if you will, flies down and it empowers him. And it is the Holy Spirit. It is divine that God has empowered Jesus without getting lost into the early church ideas of whether or not Jesus was born God or if God came down and empowered him. And there's different ideas about this. The point is, after he was baptized and he had received the spirit, and moved on into a city to perform miracles and wondrous deeds, his own audience was like, who is this? We know this Jesus. We know his mother. We know his brothers and sisters. Look at the dove held in Athena's hand. This dove represents love, wisdom. These are things the Greek world has already had. And it's very interesting that the dove is the symbol for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament where the dove comes down and empowers Jesus and Telemachus in the Odyssey. And while that sounds like, well, so what, Derek? Why does that matter? Anyone who's read Homer's Odyssey will be reminded of Athena, the goddess, feminine divine. If you notice anything about the Holy Spirit, it's usually feminine sometimes attributed to wisdom, but yet divine. Athena, the goddess, flies down to empower Telemachus, the son of Odysseus. Why? Because he started to doubt. He doubted whether he was the son of Odysseus, king of Ithaca. And once Telemachus comes down and reminds him, O oh, Telemachus, you are the son of Odysseus. He is your father, and he's coming back. He's not dead. Don't believe that he's dead. He gets empowered, and he goes back to the suitors in his house, and he yells and lets them know, 
My father's coming back and he's not dead. And he is pretty confident. And the suitors see what has gotten into Telemachus. They're shocked by what has empowered him, just as what empowered Jesus. Here's another hype connection that I found that really radically transformed my way of perceiving McDonald's work. And there was this woman who brought alabaster ointment in the Gospel of Mark. You also see it in Luke's Gospel and such. But the earliest account in Mark, this woman comes to anoint Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel, it seems the woman may have been a promiscuous woman. But this is what the Pharisees say of her. In Mark, she comes and takes this expensive alabaster jar and breaks it open and anoints Jesus' feet, washing it with her hair. And they ridicule her, the Pharisees. Why didn't she sell this and give the money to the poor? And Jesus wants to kind of rebuke and correct this problem. So Jesus says, listen, the poor will always be with you, always. Me, not so much. But then he says, wherever my gospel and the story is told, let this woman's story be told far and wide. Like Let her, her fame be known for what she did. Odysseus comes back from his journeys in disguise as a homeless man, poor beggar, homeless man, approaches his own house where one of the maids is shooing him off. But Penelope comes out and tells her to shut her mouth. And she says, how can we help you? Because they were generous to strangers, especially homeless. So she gets one of her maids, one of her slaves in the house to help take care of Odysseus. And he chose the wise one, who was this name, woman, Eurycleia. Now her name means fame, noble, far and wide. This idea of, of a well-known woman. This very woman was his nurse who not only his nurse but she suckled Odysseus when he was an infant as a child she knows who Odysseus is but he's disguised nobody recognized Odysseus but all of a sudden as she's anointing his feet she recognizes a scar and when she sees the scar on his feet she realized oh master it's you it's you. And he grabs her by the throat and tells her not to tell no one. The time isn't ready. We're not ready. We're going to be killed if you say something. And she wanted to tell Penelope, Odysseus's wife, so bad, but didn't. But she recognized her master, just like the woman in the gospel recognized her master, Jesus. And Eurycleia means far and wide. The name of the nurse in Odysseus' story is Eurycleia, which means far and wide, broad, noble story that is going to be told in the Gospels. We find that the woman who is actually anointing Jesus' feet for his burial, this story will be told famously far and wide. It's a pun on the Greek word Eurycleia, which is the name of the woman who recognized her master in the Odysseus narrative. Also, her master was a poor beggar. Odysseus shows up as a homeless poor beggar, and Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, but not me. 
as she's anointing his feet for burial. This is an interesting parallel. One has to see that this connection is being taken place. It's obvious that this is the connection to the Odysseus story. The story is going to be told far and wide, Jesus said, about the woman who anointed his feet. When I saw this connection, it was as if I had been reading this forever and never noticed the whole time. Here is this connection. And I saw that the literary connections were stronger than I realized. While some of McDonald's work isn't as strong, though the connection may be there, some of them are so obvious that to deny them requires cognitive dissonance. The continuation takes place with seas and storms and they're crying out for the sea and the storm to calm in the Odysseus story. Sure enough, the same happens with Jesus calming the wind and sea. We see Polyphemus and the caveman in the Odysseus story. Aeneid also jumps on the same bandwagon. The Gerasene demoniac is this connection, if you will, to this caveman scenario. We also know that this is where the Cyclops connections take place. Circe's drug transforms into swine. This same issue is when Jesus casts demons into swine. You see these issues where like Apollo staunches Glossius' wound and Jesus staunches the woman's hemorrhage. We know about the story with Aegisthus and Clement's Mestra murder Agdemimon and Herodotus or Herod murders John the Baptist. You go into these stories and you find out it's much deeper than you would suspect. Far more details actually parallel to the point of John the Baptist being beheaded and the murder in the Odyssey Iliad is also beheaded. The situation is, is very common and, and the motif is very parallel. Nestor's feast for 4,500, Jesus' feast for 5,000. Hermes speeds over water to Priam. Jesus speeds over water to disciples. Odysseus escapes the harbor of the cannibals. Jesus and the Pharisees at the harbor. We see blind men who see, blind men at the house of fishermen. The literary parallels continue. We even find Hector and Achilles trade taunts in the Odyssey. And Hector knows his gods abandoned him. In the Gospel of Mark, we see bystanders are taunting Jesus at the cross. And he even goes on to say, God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? Hector was the hero of the city of Troy. And Hector was their battle warrior, the king. He came out to fight and he fought against Achilles. And sure enough, as he fought against Achilles and the gods were all there present, just like the Yahweh of the Hebrew Bible is always present in battle, you find that Achilles defeats Hector, the hero of the city. He drags his body around the city for three days. His body stays intact, even though he's dragging him by a rope on the ground. And for three days, this happens. Jesus is killed for three days. His body is still intact. And then Joseph of Arimathea asks for his body to be buried. The father 
of Hector asks Achilles if he could bury his son after three days. Now, while they're not perfectly literarily connected, we find the motif there. And what happens? After Hector is destroyed and killed, the city of Troy gets destroyed. After Jesus is destroyed and killed, the city of Jerusalem gets destroyed. Why? Because its hero is destroyed. These common motifs, they happen to take place all over. And this is why I recommend looking into this literature deeper. These common motifs are very interesting when you parallel them from Dennis McDonald's work and connecting it over to the Gospels. Need I remind everybody, the Gospel of John is another very interesting Gospel connecting not only to the Odyssey at points in the Iliad, but Euripides the Bacchae, where Dionysus, the wine god, is compared to Jesus. Let me give you some parallels to give you an example. Just like Dionysus, Jesus is a god who comes to earth in mortal disguise. He has a champion heralding him. The people's leaders reject him. His symbolic names abound. Jesus' first stage-setting miracle is clearly a Dionysian one. Both bring forth wine miraculously. Yet that is only one of numerous identity-establishing miracles that the two share in common. Jesus and Dionysus both make old men move as if they were young again. Both prompt devotion from old men in spite of competing family loyalties. The Johannine Jesus provides his own miraculous supply of water and attracts women followers known for their promiscuity, just as Dionysus was famed to do. Both vex their initiates' disciples with the requirement of eating the God's raw flesh and drinking his blood, which we call the Eucharist today. Jesus, Dionysus, is harshly interrogated at his provenance and paternity. He is the liberator of slaves. He is the one whom his opponents cannot see, but the formerly blind clearly can. He is the one who can miraculously escape arrest. He is the one who initiates travel safety into the underworld and are brought back to life. Jesus and Dionysus are similarly opposed by godfighters, yet both equally acclaimed by many groups of people. Jesus imitates Dionysus even as he rivals him as the true grapevine. Both willingly meet their own arrest. Though the ignominy of crucifixion and lack of vengeance are uncharacteristic of Dionysus, the Johannine Jesus still plays a Bacchae-inspired role in his imitation of Pentheus, the murdered king. The Johannine resurrection interweaves characteristics of Dionysus and Pentheus in its depiction of the defiled royal corpse being raised within a garden and a woman followers who surround him but also do not initially recognize his body. The disembodied apotheosis of the first edition of John is Hallmark Dionysus. Jesus cleansing the temple. You've turned my father's house into a den of robbers, den of thieves. And while there is literary parallel to the Hebrew Bible, there's also this interesting connection, and it may be eclectic, to the Odyssey, where Odysseus comes back after his 20-year journey, and finally, looking as a beggar, comes into his own house, and they're trying to pull the string onto the bow. No man had the strength to do so, but this beggar said, let me 
which is really Odysseus. He was able to do so, and the suitor said, Who are you? They knew at that point that they had messed up. And he said, It's me, Odysseus. And he goes to kill the suitors that are in his house. Well, the suitors that were in the house in Jerusalem were killed in 70 AD, according to these epics called the Gospels. In the Odyssey, they're killed in the house of the king. And this is exactly what we see paralleled in the Bible. If we look at Acts, you find this famous story where Paul, on the road to Damascus, is falling to the ground and being blinded by a light. And Jesus says to him, his name was not Paul at this moment, it was Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? He says. And he finds out it's Jesus whom he is persecuting. This same quotation comes from the Hebrew Bible. When King Saul is chasing King David, or the soon-to-be King David, for nine years, and as he's chasing him, one day King David yells out, Saul, Saul, why do you pursue me? And the same Greek word in the LXX, the Septuagint, persecute and pursue are the same thing. So we see the literary borrowing in the Hebrew Bible, but what about the Euripides Bacchae? What about the fact that he's blinded by a bright light and the God who could have destroyed him, just like Pentheus, who is blinded by a bright light while following the Minads out into their orgiastic wilderness experience in the woods? He's blinded by a bright light, a whirlwind of light, and they notice him instead of being destroyed by Dionysus. Jesus shows mercy to his enemies who did not recognize him as the son of God, as a deity. But Paul then, or Saul, does come to recognize him and Jesus shows mercy where Dionysus shows wrath. These common parallels are on and on and on. They take place. They never stop. It keeps going. It's hard to kick against the goads. This directly comes from Euripides Bacchae. And we know this Bacchae goes back to the 5th century BC, 3rd to 5th century BC for sure. So who borrowed from who? You have to think. You cannot be dogmatic and closed off. Christian apologists are limited in their understanding because of their faith bubble that does not allow them to pierce beyond that and recognize these are literary not denying that there are historical kernels or potential underlying reality to these motifs, but if you really want something to sink in, you need to write an epic. Now, too many people may fall trapped to the fact that since it's literary, everything must be literary. And while that is taking place, there's also the polemic against those who think there might be some kernel of truth historically. And they say, how are you going to make chicken salad out of chicken shit? Because what you've done is you've taken a literary motif that is not historically reliable in any way, shape, or form and are trying to find kernels of history beneath that. You can't, they will say. These are complete fiction. Why don't you give up the game and the gamble? And in my view, I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of times this is how they wrote things that were historically important. 
So without throwing the baby out with the bathwater, let's keep an open mind on the subject and not be dogmatic one way or the other. But as we continue to look into Luke, we look into Matthew, you will see these common tropes. When Jesus describes this whole parable in the Gospels of Luke, and of course there is found in John as well, with Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man's begging for water to touch his tongue, we see that he's tantalizing. And this story may come from Tantalus, from the Greek world, where he's constantly wanting to thirst and eat, but he cannot. He cannot get the water into his lips. He cannot eat the food it's, he's constantly reaching for that he can never get. And this is what we see with the rich man and Lazarus in the parable. These are very interesting literary comparisons. But why are we only looking at the Hebrew Bible? The story's that much greater. Plus, if you're going to take this to a Gentile audience, are we to believe these authors strictly stuck with only the Hebrew Bible as their source material? Or is it more probable that they're also using eclectic options? They're constantly looking at both Hebrew Bible as well as the stories known in the cultural broader audience. We're looking at the Greco-Roman world. That makes more sense. It's not only that, but Dennis also goes even further to show that some of the early church fathers and early church Christians saw these connections between the Odyssey, the Iliad, and the Gospels. These are things that I love to look at, and I hope more people do, because as humans, as pattern-seeking creatures, and also as humans who relate, we all have a story. And we all want our story to stick. We can relate in so many ways to these Gospels. And I surely hope that you will consider looking at more of the sources. Seeing the fingerprints of humans behind all of this. How much more intelligent do we look? Rather than pretending that these are all inerrant, infallible, moved by God. These are perfect, literary, da 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 No. These are brilliant elites writing literary compositions better yet, epics in Jesus' time. These are ways to solidify something powerful if you want to convince people of a story that will definitely make them want to believe. And this is the Epic of Jesus. Jesus.